Good morning, everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So good to have you with us today. 2022 has been quite a year for unions. Minnesota nurses used the threat of an end-of-year strike to get a new contract last week with more pay and changes at their workplace. Railway workers almost went on strike this fall. And earlier this year, teachers in Minneapolis walked off the job. It's also been quite a year for new unions. Petitions to form a union were up 53% this year compared to last year. And workers organized unions for the first time in some new places, an Amazon warehouse, an Apple store, here at the Minnesota Historical Society, and also at more than 250 Starbucks coffee shops across the country. So what is behind all the union activity? Today, we're going to talk about how more workers are using collective bargaining to negotiate pay raises to cope with inflation and also deal with issues like short staffing, demanding schedules, and even income inequality. And I definitely want to hear from you. Our phone lines are open this morning. Are you in a union or were you in a union in the past? What's been your experience? Or if you're not in a union, would you want to be in one? You can call us at 651-227-6000. You can also call 800-242-2828. Tweet me at Angela Davis NPR. Let's bring in our guest for the hour. We have with us William Jones. Will is a professor of history at the University of Minnesota. He studies and writes about organized labor, unions, racial inequality, and history, the history of the civil rights movement. Will, great to have you back on the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Angela. Also on the line, we have Lauren Kaori Gurley, the labor reporter for The Washington Post. She previously covered labor and tech for Vice's motherboard. Lauren, so glad you could join us this hour. Thank you so much for having me on, Angela. And Lauren, I'll start with you. Uh, You've been very busy, I know, this year, writing a lot of stories about strikes, (laughs) unions, and workplace issues. So what are your general thoughts about the reasons why we are seeing more efforts to unionize and more strikes as well in 2022? How do you describe what's going on? Sure. So I think what we're really seeing is a change in the public perception um, of unions. Uh, This year, um, the Gallup did a poll that recorded that 71% of Americans now approve of labor unions. This is the highest um, that, that they've measured since they started collecting this data in 1965. And I think a lot of this cultural shift, um, has been triggered, you know, going back to the 2008 recession and sort of, um, you know, a lot of workers and people in the United States, um, you know, seeing uh, corporations and the leaders of their companies, um, you know, really benefit from off their labor while people are struggling. And we we continue to see this in particular during the pandemic, right? A lot Mm -hmm. of workers risked their lives. They died on the line, uh, in grocery stores, um, just on the front lines working, um, while, uh, you know, the people at the top of their companies, um, were raking in record profits, like at Amazon, Amazon expanded massively. And so I think, you know, for, um, an older generation, maybe baby boomers, there is sort of a negative, a connotation, um, for a while, um, that was sort of connected with unions. And, and we sort of started to see that change. A lot of this new organizing is being driven by millennials and Gen Z and young liberal um, 
sometimes college-educated workers in the United States who have seen their um, socioeconomic conditions uh, deteriorate. And especially, um, you know, during the pandemic, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of these inequalities were were highlighted. So two things happening, the perception of unions changing, and also this feeling that that work conditions are deteriorating. People, you know, struggled, as you said. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I I guess talking to railway workers, because that was the latest big sort of labor showdown that right. sort of came to an end a few weeks ago. Um, you know, I talked to, to workers whose, whose lives had really been destroyed by um, some of the business models that had been put into place over the past few years that forced them to work longer hours, mm-hmm. um, more unpredictable schedules. Uh, they couldn't even go to a doctor's appointment. I talked to the family of a, a worker who who died from a heart attack on a train because he had to postpone a doctor's appointment. Um, mm. So it's not just about wages. Mm. I think it's it's broader. And, and there's there's just this feeling that um, sort of the, the causes of inequality <laughs> are not being addressed. And, and a good way to address them is by unionizing. And, and there's data to back this up that workers often point to that, you know, union workers in um, make more than their non-union counterparts in, in similar jobs. Um, and that that um, is even greater uh, for for workers of color, black and, and brown workers, that, that the boost that unions give workers. And uh, Professor Jones, Will, what are, what are the big takeaways for you this year when you look nationally at what we saw with union activity? Yeah, I guess I would say, <clears throat> I would point to a number of things that Lauren pointed to. I think that was really correct about some of the reasons why we've seen this. I guess I would also point to what I think is an important distinction. I think I see sort of two groups of workers um, gaining visibility for their union activity. Uh, one is the the younger workers um, that we've seen sort of turning to the union movement in ways that we haven't seen before. Uh, Starbucks workers, Amazon workers, um, workers at places that had not previously been unionized. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that those are in some ways driven by similar things. But then we see another group of workers like the railway workers, the nurses, teachers who have actually been unionized for a long time and have a practice of collective bargaining. So they're not so much asking to have their union recognized um, and trying to and, and in some ways they're not they don't represent a new development in the union movement, they, in some ways, they're, you know, the reasons they're striking or threatening to strike are some, in some ways related to new conditions. Um, but I think if we're thinking about the sort of long-term trajectory of the union movement, we'll need to see some recognition of unions in places where that we haven't seen them before. So Amazon, uh, Starbucks, uh, and, and other places like that. Well, we'll here in Minnesota, you know, I was looking at the calendar. We were bracing for a, a possible nurses strike that uh, would have, it was scheduled to start yesterday, December 11th, uh, that union representing about 15,000 nurses in the Twin Cities and Duluth area uh, had voted to walk out if they didn't reach an agreement on a new contract. And will remind us, what were some of the key issues for nurses here across Minnesota? Right. Well, some of it were, were was uh, the wage issues in part related to the to inflation that a lot of us are facing. Mm-hmm. Um, they were also concerned about staffing, um, the the difficulties of hiring nurses, um, which they, you know, connected to the wage issues. You know, their their argument was that if you improve wages and working conditions, it'll make it easier uh, to hire. But they were also concerned about how 
the nurses who were on the job were taking on additional work um, and that they felt that the, 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 the staffing levels were reaching the point where it was actually threatening the health of, and the safety of the patients so that they weren't able to provide adequate health care um, unless there was more hiring um, and, uh, and, and sort of trying to relieve the staffing pressure on the nurses. And Lauren, have you seen nurses in other parts of the country having trouble reaching uh, agreements on their contracts? Yeah. um, I mean, there have been a number of nurse strike threats around the country uh, in California, um, I believe in New York, um, across the Midwest. uh, And I think that, um, you know, I I can't recall the specific issues that they face, but I know that across the board, um, a principal issue, uh, like Will was saying, is, is really staffing levels. And, you know, wages are important because of inflation, but there's really this feeling that um, this sort of vicious cycle that, you know, uh, these hospitals aren't adequately staffed and that right. causes um leads to, to nurses working under very stressful conditions when, you know, someone's life is at stake or facing sort of workplace violence. They're not adequately staffed when, when you know, um, something goes wrong. Um, and so uh, I think that uh, broadly, a lot of a lot of those issues has, have caused people to quit their jobs, which obviously exacerbates the understaffing right. issue. People are leaving um not just the nursing industry, but also like education, a lot of government jobs that haven't seen adequate, um, you know, wage increases to sort of make up for inflation and going to the private sector or going to other jobs where they feel like their at least their well-being and their mental health is is more accounted for. Um, right. Uh, the, there's just this feeling the great. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying that that mental health and, um, you know, and in and, and this situation with the hospitals and the nurses, you know, the potential danger to patients. It's, it's not just about wages. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just about wages. Wages are obviously important and they're tied and, and workers have seen big wage increases this year, at least historic ones. Um, inflation obviously has wiped a lot of that out. Though. Right. Well, we're starting to get in a lot of phone calls, so I want to bring in some listeners to our conversation. We're talking about strikes, collective bargaining, unions. Are you in a union or were you in a union in the past? What was your experience? Uh, If you're not in a union, would you want to be in one in your workplace? And are you maybe part of a situation right now where you're in the process of trying to organize a union where you work? Tell us about it. You can call us at 651-227-6000. Again, the number is 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Let's take some calls in Minneapolis. Ami is on the line. Good morning, Ami. And what did you want to share with us? Good morning. I am um, calling to talk about uh, our union newly formed at the Minnesota Historical Society We won our election last November, and we've been bargaining since June. Um, So uh, we're fighting for our first contract. We want a strong contract, and we've got a rally coming up on Saturday um, to support that. So, I mean, tell me, what's going on? What what is happening with the work conditions or wages there uh, among workers at the Minnesota Historical Society that you want to form a union? Yeah, um, it's a lot of the issues that you've touched on already. So um, nearly half of our workers are currently paid less than a living wage. 
Um, we've got workers across the state of Minnesota, and this is affecting us across our institution. Um, and that's, you know, unacceptable, unsustainable, especially for folks who have dedicated years, in some cases decades, to working at MNHS um, and are still being paid entry-level wages. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also fighting for guaranteed paid parental leave um, so and uh, affordable health care so that people don't have to make choices between having safe and healthy families or their jobs. And what, what has it been like in the, you know, initial conversations in talking among mm-hmm. colleagues, like, should we do this? Are you on board? Are, are you going to, you know, be a part of this? Has it been easy or hard to, to recruit people to, to come on board and join you in this effort? Um, we've had a really strong support among staff. Uh, we won our election two to one in um, November last year, and that was despite some strange um, (laughs) situation about management naming some of our employees as um, temporary workers, which we saw as a way to kind of exclude our our coworkers from our union. Um, Mm -hmm. Thankfully, that was resolved, and uh, those folks are now counted officially in our bargaining unit. but we've had, yeah, we've had strong support throughout our fight for our contract, um, which has been amazing. And now we're just seeking more support from our public and the community so that we can um, not drag this out any, any longer. And where are you or how would you describe how contract negotiations are going? Where are you with this? Yeah, uh, it's, it's been tough, to be honest. Um, we are currently in our bargaining. We're bargaining for um, strong like economic proposals. To guarantee, like I said, living wages for all of our workers, recognition for years of service, um, paid family leave and parental leave. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been it's been disappointing, I would say, um, to encounter management's attitude of defensiveness and at times indifference in the face of this, um, mm-hmm. because we're talking about people's livelihoods. And as a consequence, we're talking about the survival of the Minnesota Historical Society So that's not something Mm. that we take lightly and not something that um, we want to postpone any longer. I mean, thank you for calling in and sharing what is happening there. Again, uh, she works at the Minnesota Historical Society uh, here in St. Paul, now part of a union. Uh, What what can you tell us about what's happening there and and what you heard in her comments and what we know about public sector employees, maybe compared to folks who work in the private sector and and how their right to unionize may, may differ, you know, state to state? Yeah, well, so uh, public employees are not uh, covered by the National Labor Relations Act, which is the law that provides most workers, you know, in the private sector, the vast majority of workers are in the private sector, and they're covered by this federal law. Um, So when public employees like at the Minnesota Historical Society or at the University of Minnesota, any um, working for any public agency, um, their collective bargaining rights are governed by state law, which in Minnesota, Minnesota has a pretty robust uh, state collective bargaining law. It was passed in 1971 after a teacher strike in Minneapolis. And I think it works pretty well. I think most many people who are involved in the system would argue that it works pretty well. It varies a lot from state to state. So there are states um, that do not have any law. Um, And then there are some states that explicitly prohibit collective bargaining by public employees. For example, uh, North Carolina 
um, does not allow any collective bargaining by public employees. They can join unions, but they mm-hmm. can't uh, bar- negotiate a contract. So that's one of the weaknesses of the of that system is that it really varies from state to state. We saw uh, about a decade ago in Wisconsin, um, Wisconsin was the first state to pass one of these laws, and they severely rolled it back. So it made it almost impossible for uh, for public employees in Wisconsin to bargain collectively. And you see these variations from from state to state. And well, uh, you're a history professor there at the University of Minnesota. The service workers uh, at the University of Minnesota almost went on strike this year, uh, right there in your backyard. What were their key issues? What do we know about what was happening there? Right. Well, yeah, these were um, these were maintenance and food service workers uh, represented by the Teamsters Union on campus. Um, and their issues were some of the same issues around wages. Um, their uh, many of their um, uh, the, their members do not uh, earn a living wage. They talked about feeling, you know, in, economically insecure. Their wages were not keeping up with uh, inflation. Um, they pointed to very high um, level wage increases for some some of the employees of the university. The president, for example, got a really massive wage and in, uh, salary increase. The mm-hmm. we just saw last week that the the football coach um, got a million dollars, an extra million dollars every year. Um, and so they pointed to the fact that uh, this mostly uh, uh, low wage. Um, largely people of color. There's a lot of immigrants, uh, Somali immigrants and people from other parts of the world uh, who are, you know, providing food service on campus and they're barely getting by um, at, a, at a moment when some other people are getting a lot of money. And so they felt that that was un- unfair. Um, yeah, they almost went on strike, um, gave notice of a strike and uh, ultimately came to a, a deal that they accepted with the university. With the- University and Lauren, we heard that um, the, the the woman who called in at the Minnesota Historical Society. She taught. Um, in addition, she said, you know, workers are being paid less than you know the livable wage, but also, um, you know, they're trying to get paid time off. You know, leave. Uh, we saw this really uh, with the railway workers. They were negotiating, negotiating, and you know that was a, a top issue for them, like paid time off, sick leave. Right. Yeah. So. Um... The the standoff that eventually went before Congress really coalesced around this demand. Um, similarly, that uh, rail workers get seven paid sick days. Mm-hmm. Currently, they don't receive a single paid sick day, which sounds because um, people know, are getting unbelievable sick to a lot of all the time. It, it, <laughs> right, it's, it's COVID. Unbelievable. Right? Wait, right. Right. Yeah. So it's very unbelievable. I think it's an issue that a lot of people in the public sympathize with because everyone, I mean, especially during a pandemic, but, um, you know, workers had had um, gone to work. Oh, I spoke to many rail workers who went to work um, with COVID during the pandemic. And obviously, during, in some of these sort of um, uh, labor pools, workers are very close to each other. And like when they're fixing rail cars, they're in the same sort of machines and uh, it just like spread like wildfire. So um, I, yeah, I mean, I think across the board, sick days have become very important. I think with the rail workers in particular, I would note that these sick days were sort of symbolic in a way. Um, they're sort of a stand in um, for 
the de- degradation of working conditions and severe mm-hmm. understaffing and grueling schedules that have been implemented um, by the railroads under a business model called pre-schedule- precision scheduled railroading, which is this sort of new model deci- uh, designed to improve in- efficiency and cut costs. Um, mm-hmm. But it has actually pushed rail workers to work longer hours, more unpredictable hours. And so I think for a lot of workers, the, the push for paid time off um, is not just about paid time off, but it's coming at a time when they're being asked to do more with less um, less resources, less staffing. And so uh, that has become a particularly, um, you know, poignant issue for them. All right. I want to come back uh, to talk more about the possibility of that, that rail strike and what was going on there. But first, uh, I want to get to more of these listeners who are on the phone. Uh, we have a phone call in St. Paul. Uh, Patty is on the phone. And Patty, what do you want to share with us as we talk about unions and strikes and collective bargaining? Hi, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. So I was one of the nurses who was going to go out on strike starting yesterday at 7 a.m. One of our big issues has been the corporatization of healthcare and the buying up of hospitals. As people have noted just recently, Fairview has come in an agreement with Sanford Health, which is lives in a right to work state. So there's a lot of like union busting tactics kind of going on in the background, even though we're a very well established and large union. Um, Patty, so what, does, what does that look comment. like? What does that look like when you say union busting tactics? Well, for example, our contract, we started negotiating in March, right? Mm-hmm. And we've had like 38 sessions in my bargaining unit. And until we had this last threat, to go on a three-week strike, our our leaders were not coming to the table to do any bargaining. They would come for five minutes. They'd leave for four hours. They'd come back for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. They'd leave for another couple hours. So we would sit all day waiting for negotiations to happen. So those kinds of things kind of dishearten the worker, right? We're not Mm -hmm. moving forward. There's no answers today. We meet a lot, but nothing is happening. So... Mm -hmm. I think that was one tactic that I seen just in this recent negotiation. So, and your work conditions, Patty. Tell me a little bit about what was really driving you to to pursue this. Well, were, were you seeing, you know, just again the your conditions in, in the hospital clinic you work? Were you understaffed? Uh, what was happening that you that helped you feel urgent about? We need to do this. In my particular bargaining unit, we have a huge backup in our emergency department, Mm -hmm. and it's just trickling down into every other category of nursing. So you can't get into a hospital bed. You're sitting in the emergency room for hours, sometimes days. The next thing that's happening is that once you get into that bed, you're in that bed so long because there's a backup in, like, TCUs and long-term care, and the pay is not Mm -hmm. in those places. I mean... Part of the reason I felt so strongly about even including the pay and part of this is because we as a union need to raise up the other workers that work that are non-unionized, right? So we Mm -hmm. need to bring their wages up so we have workers that can take all kinds of patients. Mm -hmm. So I think for me that was a big piece of it is just the backup throughout the Twin Cities, the closure of the hospitals, which lost so many beds now in the Twin Cities, which is has just been so disheartening, I feel. so. 
Thank you. That's Patty in St. Paul calling in uh, as we talk about strikes and unions. Let's take another phone call. Uh, this time in Fargo, we've got Joshua on the line. Hi, Joshua. What do you want to tell us? Uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, well, I'd like to share my extremely positive experience with uh, joining the UBC Local 1176. So I'm a carpenter. Okay. Um, the first benefit that I that I that I noted was I went from fourteen dollars an hour to over twenty five dollars an hour as an apprentice. That's a big jump. So that's a big jump. That's a huge jump. Um, and then, of course, there the other uh, huge benefit, at least within the so called skilled trades. And me personally, I don't think there's anything. There's no such thing as unskilled labor. Um, they all require skills, and they all they all carry risks. And so they should all be paid a living wage, of course. Um, but carpentry is considered a is is considered a quote unquote skilled trade. And so we have training programs through the uh, through the union. So I have a reasonable expectation of any coworker, no matter if I've worked with them before or not. But my coworkers are going to be well trained coming onto the job site, and that is also huge. Mm-hmm. Um, now I live in I live in Fargo, North Dakota, as you said, um, and this is a right to work state. So there is there are not a whole lot of union employers in this area. Most of our union employers come out of the Twin Cities um, to work in this area. So there are some layoff periods, but we make you know so much more than than our compatriots in the uh, in in the uh, in the non union sector um, that we can afford to take the time off. And, you know, we might not get sick days, but again, we can afford to take the time off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, That's Joshua there in Fargo, uh, a member of a union, a carpenter. And Lauren, uh, early in the conversation, you said that there is data that supports um, that if you are a member of a union, then your wages are likely going to be higher. Yeah. So um, I believe that across the board in similar jobs, non-union workers make significantly less than union workers and that this sort of trend is even more true for for workers of color, uh, particularly black and brown workers. I don't have the exact data, but the Economic Policy Institute did a great study on that. Um, And not only is it wages, um, I think there's a significant uh, union workers in, in similar jobs have a have a much higher uh, likelihood of, of having paid health care from their employers um, than non-union workers in similar jobs. So so there is, um, you know, and, and this isn't across the board, but um, there is, you know, I think it it, it looks different in, in, in industries where wages are like a lot higher, like in the tech industry, for example. Um, but uh, and where in the tech industry, you're probably more likely to see um non-union workers working lower paid jobs to begin with, but um, um, especially in sort of traditional blue collar trades or um, uh, education, nursing, things like this, wages, there's a big, big, uh, like as a large likelihood that your wages will be higher if you're in a union. Mm -hmm. And will anything you would say about that, uh, about being a member of a union and wages and just the difference that can make? Yeah, well, I mean, just the, the, the overall what they call the union wage premium, which is the difference between a union worker and a non-union worker in similar, you know, comparable occupations, is about 13%. Um, and as Lauren, Lauren pointed out, it's actually much higher for workers of color. So the the union wage premium for black workers is about 17%. 
uh, for Latino workers, it's actually 23%. So they earn 23% more than uh, if they belong to a union than if they had not belonged to a union. Okay, more phone calls in Minneapolis. We've got Bobby on the line. Hey, Bobby. Hey, how are you doing? Well, what did you want to tell us about unions? Yeah, absolutely. So my partner is a uh, teacher in a very well-funded district in uh, suburban Minneapolis, and uh, he is part of a union. However, his union seems to be a bit toothless in that they aren't able to win concessions from their district and and seem to be underrepresented in in most negotiations. My question for this group is uh, how smaller unions or unions that uh, perhaps have less power uh, are able to increase their power and uh, win some concessions from their employers. Mm, thank you. That's Bobby in Minneapolis. Uh, Lauren, he described a toothless union. Uh, what can you tell us about what you've seen nationally when, you know, there's a perception, perception that the union is weak or there is not a success in getting a, a, a contract? Sure. Well, you hear a lot from union organizers and labor experts that a union is really only as strong as, you know, its membership is organized. Um, And so I think in a lot of cases, I've spoken to workers across the country who've been, you know, very upset about, um, you know, what their unions have been able to achieve for them, feeling that their unions aren't, you know, supporting them, um, that they might be, I've even heard, you know, people talk about corruption, um, or just general um, bureaucracy within unions. And so I guess, in, in my, in my coverage, um, I think that the, the workers that seem most satisfied with their unions, um, and that seem to have the, win the biggest gains have, you know, very strong organizing, um, among the rank and file membership where members are very involved in their union. They have a say in sort of the conditions, um, that they're fighting for. Um, it's not top down, it's bottom up. Um, but I would also say that, um, they're, often also backed by unions with a lot of resources, right? So um, that's, that's, a, that's a, tough, a tough thing for, for smaller unions that maybe don't have as, as much resources. So, you know, workers have a choice or when they unionize, they can go an independent route and form their own union. There's risks there and benefits there. Um, but uh, there are also benefits of, of going with a larger union that has more resources behind it, which can also come with some bureaucracy, I would say. And Will, you're our historian, our labor historian. Uh, what can you tell us about what makes a strong union and what creates a weak one? Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, as Lauren pointed out, I mean, unions are democratic organizations, right? So they reflect uh, they, um, the, 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 the interests and the, the will of their members to the degree to which their members, you know, are organized and sort of active. Um, I think there's a longstanding tension within the union movement between sort of servicing and protecting the interests of the workers who um, belong to the union and uh, trying to provide them with sort of day-to-day services uh, and and to negotiate on their behalf. And then trying to win other things, right? To sort of expand, to um, perhaps be be a little bit more militant uh, in their actions. And so I think you see this in, particularly in, you know, long established unions where you see often people who are, you know, sort of satisfied with the sort of day-to-day actions and what they have. Um, And then people often, you know, belonging to the same unions who are frustrated that the union doesn't go out and, you know, fight for more things. And I think um, that's a matter of, 
I mean, when you see unions changing, it's a matter of, you know, often, you know, sort of a militant minority within the union organizing and often taking leadership of the union um, and pointing the union in a more uh, militant direction. And let's talk more history. Uh, Well, when did unions really gain influence here in the United States? Well, we've had unions in the United States since the really since the mid uh, 19th century. Um, the, 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 the power that we see of unions sort of today often rests on the ability to bargain collectively and sort of legal protections for uh, collective bargaining. And those are 20th century developments. Um, you know, we saw with the railway workers, they were actually the, the big, the largest or the first large group of unions to, or of workers to gain collective bargaining rights. So they bargained under a 1926 law um, that gave railway workers the right to bargain collectively. Most public employees gained, or I'm sorry, most private employees gained the right to bargain collectively through the National Labor Relations Act, which was passed in 1935. Um, public employees came later, mostly in the 1970s and 1980s. In terms of their formal uh, ability to bargain collectively. Now, all of those workers joined unions uh, in in many cases going back to the 19th century, but the formal collective bargaining rights were gained in the 20th century. And if we look at today, what percentage of workers belong to unions uh, nationally? And then what do we know about here in Minnesota? How many people are in unions? Um, so now about, I believe the number is just under 10% of all workers belong uh, to unions nationally. Mm. Um, in Minnesota, it's slightly higher. I think it's a, in the mid-teens, um, the, the percentage of workers who belong to unions. Um, and that represents a very dramatic decline since the in the 1950s, about one in three workers belonged to, to a union. Um, so we've seen a really dramatic and steady decline uh, since then. Um, and I think we're, you know, that's something that's interesting about this moment. I think it raises the possibility that the renewed interest in unions and the renewed support for unions uh, could start to change that dynamic. But, in, you know, for the, the, the trend going forward for the past 10 years or so, or actually about 40 years has been a decline in the number of people belong to unions. Yeah, I have in my notes here in Minnesota, about 17% of workers belong to unions. And, you know, we've been talking about young people. Uh, uh, Will, you teach a course, uh, I think, on labor history there at the U. What are you talking about? And I'm just curious, like, what do your students think about unions and strikes? What do you hear from them in conversations in class? Yeah, thanks for the shout out to my students and working workers in the United States. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting moment to be teaching a course like this because uh, we have every day we have something, you know, in the mm-hmm. news that's very closely related to the topic. Um, I think, you know, my students are generally, you know, they're interested in unions. Um, some of them come from union families. Um, many do not. Uh, and so because in some ways this is a, a sort of renewed, there's this renewed attention, I think, a lot of people are not familiar with this background, and so there's a sort of curiosity to know about this uh, this topic that hasn't gained as much attention recently. And Lauren, have you been writing about younger workers? Uh, what are you seeing in terms of uh, younger people being interested in organizing uh, new unions? Sure. Yeah. So like I said, um, this year has the high, like Americans approval rating for unions is the highest it's been since Gallup started recording that information in the 60s. But, um, you know, a lot of that boost is being made up of uh, or is being sort of is coming from 
the youngest part of the population. I think uh, they found that 77% of adults aged 18 to 34 support unions. Um, and you really see that playing out in the union campaigns that are making the big headlines. Um, the union drive at Amazon, the first successful union campaign in Staten Island in April that voted to unionize, uh, that was largely made up of, at least the leadership of the union, was made up of, you know, um, people who were in their early 20s to early 30s, um, the similar dynamic at Starbucks right now, um, that campaign, which is basically, I think, you know, one of the most promising sort of new union drives that the country has seen in a generation that is made up of really young workers, like people who are just fresh out of college or maybe didn't go to college, but are in their early 20s. Um, similar at uh, Trader Joe's, Chipotle, REI, mm -hmm. all these campaigns that are making the big headlines are really being led by very young people. So what tell us more about the, the workers at Starbucks in particular. I mean, uh, I believe they organized a union uh, at the first Starbucks store was uh, in Buffalo, New York. Um, and now I said in the introduction, more than 250 Starbucks coffee shops have voted for a union, including several here in the Twin Cities. But it seems like it's taken a long time for anything more to happen uh, to get a, a first contract. Uh, and Will, what have you seen with the Starbucks workers? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really mixed bag, right? I mean, this the, the, the very fact that they are um, calling for union elections and for the most part winning the union elections where the mm -hmm. unions um, are when the elections are being held they're overwhelmingly in favor of the union um, that in itself is a really interesting in, uh, development and an important development um, on the other hand I think it's important to keep in mind that you know this is about 260 stores there are I think 9,000 Starbucks stores um, so it's a very small it's about three percent mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. the overall stores, right? Um, and so far, none of them have reached a contract. And I think that's the really key struggle is that, um, you know, the, 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 the corporations, Starbucks Corporation has made it pretty clear that they're not interested in talking to unions and sitting down with a union, which, you know, technically is the law. If the majority of workers want to be represented by a union, the employer is obligated to sit down and talk to them. But there are lots of ways in which um, and Starbucks, you know, is very skilled at doing this. It's sort of stalling at pushing back the contract. Mm. Hopefully, you know, I think with the hope that there's a very high turnover of the workers. And so they can just kind of wait until the union, the workers who were originally interested in the union have moved on to other jobs. And so I think that's a real test. We'll a stalling see, tactic. Um, whether, mm -hmm. a, you know, a place that has not been represented by a union and these young workers can actually get the con get a contract. And Lauren, can anything that you can add about the issues for Starbucks employees? What what is compelling them to do this? Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's not too dissimilar from the nurses and from the rail workers. I think that uh, understaffing has been a serious issue in a lot of stores across the country, not just in Buffalo um, for Starbucks workers over the years. It's it's their primary goal is not to raise wages, actually. I mean, I, I think that's one of their demands, but they are really concerned with having a say in how stores are staffed, how scheduling works, because a lot of workers right now, especially at the union stores, are seeing their hours drop so much below 20 hours a week, um, below the threshold for them to get health insurance, which is the reason mm -hmm. why a lot of Starbucks workers go to Starbucks is because of the benefits it offers. And, and once you 
get scheduled less than that threshold, um, you also lose the free uh, Arizona State, I think, University of Phoenix, I believe. Um, anyway, they have like a free college That's tuition. Um, tuition yeah Mm -hmm. program so they also lose that and so um just the scheduling and um staffing practices but also i would say that there are smaller things like credit card tipping for a long time i think until now um it wasn't an option tip on your credit card at starbucks which obviously is a huge way people pay these days so workers Mm -hmm. weren't getting tips um there is just also widespread concern that there wasn't like a good way to communicate with leadership in a district like if something was really going wrong they sort of get lost in communication like i think they they like to tout that um howard schultz the ceo um and founder of starbucks is very available to workers he hangs out in the stores he chats with baristas but i think there was this feeling that like maybe that's how they present themselves but but mm-hmm. in reality um there there really wasn't a good communication channel for workers to sort of um voice their grievances with management let's take more phone calls from listeners as we talk about unions and strikes in minneapolis john is on the phone john thank you for waiting and what did you want to add to the conversation uh yeah i, I think there are several things going on and this is a very interesting conversation because you could probably talk for hours about it but uh with amazon in Staten Island, they've already been, uh, you know, there's unfair labor practices. The NLRB is uh, after them for that. Uh, stalling techniques with the nurses union here uh, in Minnesota. Uh, they want to bust the union by making a new organization. If you uh, allow 19 hospitals and I think 10 hospitals to all join together, they form a new, a completely new type of, of unit, then they have to start from uh, scratch. And I don't think the public is aware of how that impacts patient care. Uh, and then, you know, I wanted to say one more thing with the, the railroad union. Um, you know, it's working conditions. They sit by the phone and have to wait on them to dictate to them what their schedule is. How can you have a personal life? How can you take care of your family? How can you take care of yourself? This is It's more than just getting seven days of sick leave. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm sure that in your uh, work life, you probably have more control over your work life than, than, uh, than that. And I think that it's uh, a human rights issue. They're not slaves, you know. It, it, they're not serfs to be used and abused. And uh, another thing, too, is, there has been a lot of automation in that industry freight, and uh, people don't uh, aren't aware of it, but they're down to two engineers. They're pushing um, a mile-long uh, train that carries very hazardous material right through. Uh, I'm in northeast Minneapolis, uh, right through the, some of the most populated uh, areas of the country. That's a ticking time bomb. And John, I want to give our guests an opportunity to talk about this. And, and we'll give us some history here. Like, why does the president of the United States have the right to get involved in settling a labor negotiation? I mean, that's what we saw there uh, with the railway, uh, the potential strike. How did that come about? Yeah, and I think this is a really important issue, given the conversation that we've had over the past couple, you know, during the pandemic around essential workers, which is really why they have, the president has that right. So this comes out of uh, labor conflicts during the First World War, uh, in which the federal government was concerned that a strike by railway workers would 
shut down the transportation system, you know, in the middle of a war and prevent us from moving troops, from moving equipment. Um, the federal government actually took control of the railway industry um, and nationalized the railway industry during the war in order to prevent that from happening. And then after the war, Congress uh, set up this national, uh, this Railway Labor Act, which gave the workers rights to bargain collectively, but in exchange gave Congress the right to impose these types of deals. So that, that 20, 1926 law is what the president invoked in asking Congress to impose uh, a contract. And it really, I think the important thing is that it comes out of the realization that these people are doing work that's critical to the functioning of our society and our economy, that the economy would shut down if they went on strike. And it raises the question of that if people are so critical to the functioning of society, are there certain things that they deserve in terms of their wages, in terms of their benefits, in terms of their control over their lives on the job? And I think that is really at the heart of these debates over collective bargaining law and over unions. And Lauren, I'm curious, uh, looking ahead to 2023, what do you see yourself writing about uh, over the next few months as you continue to cover labor and, and, and union issues for The Washington Post? Yeah, um, great question. So, uh you know, I think a lot of people are worried that there is going to be a recession. I think the majority of, you know, mainstream economists are predicting a recession sometime in the next year. Um, and obviously, when a recession happens, workers are a lot less likely to take big risks by unionizing or striking because they have less leverage, right? They're, it's not mm -hmm. as easy for them to go out and find a new job if they get fired. Um, that said, I think there really has been a cultural shift um, and, and that's not going away, even if there is a recession. Um, I'm expecting to see uh, more labor activity at Amazon warehouses around the country, um, you know, whether that be by the independent union that formed in Staten Island earlier this year or by other groups. I think the Teamsters are trying to unionize Amazon warehouses. There are a number of independent efforts to unionize Amazon warehouses. Um, so and, you're gonna be, and I think you're going to be busy. I just have 20 seconds uh, left here, Lauren. Oh, go ahead. Um, and so you're going to have a busy year ahead. And I'm so glad that, uh, you know, that the Post has someone dedicated to watching all of these trends. I'm going to let both of our guests go because we're out of time. But we've been talking with Lauren Kaori. Gurley, the labor reporter for The Post, as well as Professor Will Jones there at the University of Minnesota, a professor of history who studies and writes about organized labor unions and racial inequality. And he's got a class starting right now. Thank you both for your time. Today's conversation was produced by Maya Beckstrom. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.